نحن نقص عليك أحسن القصص بما أوحينا إليك هذا القرآن وإن كنت من قبله لمن الغافلين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله We begin by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the one and the unique He it is alone whom we worship and it is his aid that we seek he revealed the Qur'an to our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he taught Adam how to speak. As to what follows, we begin today insha'Allah a new uh, topic within our stories of the Prophets, within the story of our Prophet Adam alayhi salam. And today's <coughs> entire lecture will be dedicated to the alleged role of our mother Hawa. Uh, may Allah Azza wa Jal send her, uh, sends his salat and salam upon her. And what has been mentioned about the role of Hawa when it comes to this issue of disobedience, this issue of uh, eating from the tree. Now, the Quran, the Quran is actually very, very explicit in this regard, in that our mother Hawa is never singled out and no blame is put on her directly. Any time the blame is put, it is put on the both of them. فَوَسْوَسَ لَهُمَا الشَّيْطَانِ Shaytan whispered to the both of them, فَأَكَلَا مِنْهَا The both of them ate from the tree. قَالَ رَبَّنَا ظَلَمْنَا أَنفُسَنَا They said, both Adam and Hawa, we have wronged ourselves. وَقَاسَمَهُمَا Shaytan deluded the both of them. فَدَلَّاهُمَا Shaytan caused the both of them to slip. Allah says, أَلَمْ أَنْهَكُمَا Didn't I stop the both of you from eating from this tree? And I said to the both of you that you should not eat from this tree. So the Quran has no concept of Hawa taking an extra blame from Adam. In fact, if anything, it is the opposite because even though the, 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 the default of the Quran is to mention the both of them together, sometimes Allah Azza wa Jal singles out our father Adam. Hence, it is as if we get from the Qur'an that our father Adam has the lion's share or the bigger share of responsibility. And the most explicit verse is of course Surah Taha. وَعَصَى آدَمُ رَبَّهُ فَغَوَى Adam disobeyed his Lord and went astray. Then Allah chose him and accepted his repentance and guided him again. It is very, very clear from the Quranic par uh, uh, paradigm, the Quranic narrative, that Adam السلام, appears to have a larger share of responsibility. And this is what many scholars of tafsir concluded as well. The great Mufassir, the Allama Ibn Ashur, in his At Tahrir wa Tanweer, he writes that. Adam السلام, was the one who acted upon the waswasa of shaitan and ate from the tree and Hawa ate with him. And shaitan primarily attempted to seduce Adam uh, even though he wanted both Adam and Hawa to eat because he knew that the woman typically follows her husband and it is in the nature of a woman to follow her husband. And that is why Allah says, Even though he said, this is all uh, Ibn Ash 
Ashur, even though Allah says, فَأَكَلَا مِنْهَا The both of them ate, even, and then Allah Azza wa Jal singles out Adam. And so Adam was the one who, مُخَالَفَةُ نَهِيَ اللَّهِ تَعَالَ إِيَّاهُ He was the one who disobeyed the commandment of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, and the both of them then ate from the tree, and Hawa followed the example of her husband Adam. Hawa followed the example of Adam. And so when Adam ate, Hawa followed. And this is in accordance with what Allah says in the Quran, O you who believe speaking to the men, protect yourselves and your families from the punishment of Allah, from the fire of hell, end quote. And we also, of course, in the famous hadith, well-known, mutawatir hadith, that when Musa and Adam uh, met in the Alam al-Barzakh, Musa says to Adam, are you the one who ate from the tree? And are you the one who exited, who caused us to be expelled from Jannah? And Adam does not say, actually, no, it wasn't me, it was my wife, your mother, Hawa. No, he doesn't say that. He takes responsibility. And then, of course, the issue of uh, Qadr comes up. So, the Quran and the Mutawatir Sunnah seems to indicate that uh, uh, our father Adam, if anybody had a greater share. Now there is one tradition, we're gonna come to it. Now we're gonna come to it, so be patient, we're gonna come to it at the end of today, or in the middle of today's lecture. Contrast this with the biblical narrative, with the Old Testament and the New Testament. The role of Hawa, of Eve, becomes crucial. The story centers around her. She becomes the primary culprit. In fact, it is as if Adam is a, you know, bichara miskin. He's like a poor person who has no blame. He's exonerated. And the bulk of the curse and the bulk of the anger goes upon Hawa. This is one of the fundamental differences between the biblical paradigm and between the Quranic paradigm. I refer you to Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 16. And I'm going to read these because this is a very important section. And of course, as we said, this is a meandering lecture, alhamdulillah. No uh, limits and ends and I go wherever I want to go uh, in terms of content and tangents and whatnot. And I wanted to contrast the uh, story of Hawa of Eve in the Bible versus the Quran and then mention some things at the end. So the Bible says, Genesis chapter 3, Now the servant, serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God has said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die, surely you shall not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Pause here, remember, the, 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 the Christian or the biblical notion was that the tree gave them knowledge. And the Quranic notion is that, uh, is that uh, the tree was alleged to give them eternal life. There's a contrast here. We mentioned about how the church used that. Move on to the, back to the Genesis now. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for, to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, end quote. How many times the woman did, the woman did, the woman did. Shaitan seduces the woman. The woman is the one who begins the eating. The woman is the one who convinces her husband. The woman is the one who hands the, 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 the apple to Adam. The entire blame is on Eve. So the image of Eve as the temptress, as the seductress has been 
resulted in an extremely negative stereotype throughout most of Judeo-Christian tradition. And in fact, because of this, all women were believed to have inherited from their mother, the biblical Eve, the guilt and also the seduction, the temptress. So they're both guilty and they're also evil because they can seduce. Consequently, there was this notion that women were all untrustworthy. They were morally inferior. They were wicked. And in fact, quite explicitly, as we will mention, uh, according to the Old Testament, God punished not just Eve, but the daughters of Eve. God punished all women because of the sin of Eve. And He punished them by menstruation, by pregnancy, by childbearing, and by many more things. This was a punishment for the eternal guilt of the cursed female because of what she had done to seduce her husband, Adam salam, And we can examine and look at this motif throughout uh, the biblical literature. Uh, the Old Testament, for example, has uh, uh, in uh, the uh, the chapter of, uh, or in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, chapter seven, verses 26 to 28, this, this verse here, that I find more bitter than death, the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chained. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man amongst a thousand, but not one upright woman amongst them all." End quote. And in another part of the Hebrew Bible, uh, uh, which is found in the, uh, the Catholic version of the Old Testament, uh, again, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 25, no wickedness comes anywhere near the wickedness of woman. Sin began with a woman, and and thanks to her, we must all die, end quote. So the sin began with woman. She is the one who is guilty and the entire race of mankind is cursed because of her. Because of her, we are all going to die. This is what the Old Testament uh, says. And because of this, in the biblical commentaries, the, uh, the, um, the, the Talmudic uh, literature and the commentaries on the, uh, the Old Testament and the Mishnah, you find a lot of uh, references to the negative nature of women. And you have in the Babylonian Talmud, in the tract known as Iruvin 100, we find uh, that Rabbi Isaac bin Admi states, Eve was cursed with 10 curses, and then he lists them all. Unto women, God said that, I will greatly multiply, which refers to the drops of blood, menstruation, and the drop of blood of virginity, meaning that her virginity is a mark of chastity on her. And when she loses it, according to this tract, I'm speaking of this tract here, that it will be a mark of, of basically, uh, you know, dishonor in some ways if she does it in an illegitimate manner. The pain of bringing up children uh, and the pain of conception and the pain of giving birth. So he mentions three different uh, pains here. And he says that uh, the, the, the verse in the Bible that you shall be, uh, that thy desire shall be to your husband, teaches that a woman yearns for her husband when he is about to set out on a journey, meaning that the woman is attached to the husband more than vice versa. Again, I'm just quoting you what the rabbi says, don't, uh, don't take this as my uh, statements here. And that he shall rule over thee, teaches that a wife uh, solicits the husband uh, in, in order to engage, not the other way around. And her hair is wrapped up like a mourner. She is banished from the company of men. She may 
only be married to one man at a time and she is confined to her house like a prison, end quote. This was a quick run over of 10 curses that God gave to women according to this ancient uh, rabbi that is found in the Babylonian Talmud. The point being that the notion of woman being evil and the source of evil and a seductress and a temptress, it has permeated throughout much of Judeo-Christian culture. And this second class notion of women, it comes from this notion of Eve having tempted Adam and the entire legacy of mankind begins with this. And to this day, a segment of uh, uh, the Jewish people, in particular the Orthodox, uh, they begin their prayers in the mornings. They have a morning prayer. And if you are a man, you begin by saying this, that blessed be God, King of the universe, that thou has not made me a woman. Blessed be God, because I'm not a woman. Thank God I'm not a woman. And the woman is told to say that, thank God for making me according to your will. Simple as that. It's not my fault you made me in this uh, manner. And uh, in another prayer that is found in many uh, Jewish prayer books that praise be to God, he has not created me a Gentile. Praise be to God, he has not created me a woman. Praise be to God, he has not created me a fool. So end quote. So this notion of woman being inferior. Now, if you look at the Quran and Sunnah, there is no equivalent. No man is told, thank Allah that you're not a woman. As if being a woman is evil. Allah says in the Quran that he is the one who decides who gets boys who gets girls and he gives boys and girls to whomever he pleases. Allah criticizes the Quraysh in the Quran for thinking that boys are superior to girls. So look at this whole difference between uh, the Quranic paradigm and the uh, biblical uh, paradigm. And by the way, just for the, for the record, to be very clear, these Jewish prayers are only said by a segment of them, the Orthodox and seg some segments, they are not held by the conservative and the reform. Uh, we are not trying to paint the entire religion in this manner, but it is true to state that large groups, especially in pre-modern times of Jews and Christians, they felt that women uh, overall were second class to men and that they weren't as noble as men. And that is not our belief. I recently gave a khutbah, you will find it online, gender roles in Islam, please listen to that. Men and women are equal in terms of their nobility. Yes, they have different tasks and responsibilities. That has nothing to do with their nobility. They are equally human and they're equally dignified and they're equally accessing their ways to Jannah. Allah did not prefer one gender over the other. But this is not the notion of many theologians of other faith traditions. And frankly, sometimes even our own faith tradition has failed to live up to its own understanding. So the point is that the biblical Eve, the biblical Hawa has played a far bigger role in uh, this notion of seducing Adam and in causing the downfall. And this has given rise to a version of, of gender inequality in Judaism and Christianity that we find in both uh, amongst some Jewish rabbis and amongst many church fathers. Many of the uh, church fathers of the uh, New Testament of, the, of Christianity, they felt that Eve was the cause of the fall of all humanity. And therefore her daughters were sin sinners like their mother. So Saint Paul, for example, who is really one of the main founders of your life, he, he has founded this modern notion of Christianity far more than uh, Jesus Christ himself did. Saint Paul says in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy's uh, chapter two, verses 11 to 14, uh, Saint Paul writes, 
a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, she must be silent. For Adam was, for, was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one who deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and she became a sinner." End quote. So St. Paul, the real founder of the Trinity and the concept of redemption, redemption and the abolishment of the law, St. Paul is the one who says, woman was the one who seduced Adam. That's where sin begins and she is the source of uh, evil. Uh, another early church father, uh, Saint Tertullian, uh, he uh, says, and he writes in, in one of his treatises, and he's one of the uh, most respected of the first generation of church fathers. Uh, do you not know that each of you, he's speaking to women, he's speaking to women, do you know, he's writing to women, do you not know that each of you are an Eve? The sentence of God on this sex of yours lives in this age. The guilt must of necessity live too. You are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of the forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not courageous enough to attack, meaning you're the one who seduced Adam, shaitan couldn't do it. You destroyed so easily God's image, man. On account of your desertion, even the Son of God had to die." End quote. So Saint Tertullian minces no words about his view of the role of women. You are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of the forbidden tree. Shaitan couldn't attack Adam. He used you to attack Adam. This is uh, Saint Tertullian. Saint Augustine, who is without a doubt the most famous and respected of the church fathers of early Christianity and his confessions is uh, a, a, an amazing testament to be honest of uh, his own version of piety. By the way, these people, uh, uh, there's no problem in, in, in saying that before because they were pre-Islam. -pre we leave their affair to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't have to say anything, uh, you know, uh, uh, about their fate. We leave their affair to Allah. These people were trying to be righteous in a time when there was no prophethood uh, of our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and they inherited a corrupted version of Christianity and Allah azza wa jal talks about their fate in the last verses of Surah Al-Ma'idah that those who are righteous and sincere, that it is possible Allah might uh, forgive them. Uh, and I have read the Confessions of St. Augustine, and it is truly a very spiritual and moving book if you are studying early Christianity. Uh, and so that's why, I, I mean, uh, just because we disagree with this notion here and, uh, and whatnot, uh, we are not uh, saying that everything about them is necessarily evil. No doubt they had many mistakes, and this is one of them. St. Augustine writes that, what is the difference whether it is in a wife or a mother? It is still Eve the temptress that we must beware of in any woman. I fail to see what use woman can be to man if one excludes the function of bearing children." End quote. SubhanAllah. There's no use, there's no fa'idah. Women are no fa'idah except as bearers of children. What benefit? She's a seductress, she's a temptress. We must beware of a wife or a mother or a sister, doesn't matter. He's saying, what difference does it make about whether she's a sister or wife? She is the temptress. 
That's the one who seduced all of mankind. And then the greatest theologian of medieval Christianity. So St. Augustine is the greatest of early Christianity. Uh, and St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is the greatest of medieval Christianity. St. Thomas Aquinas writing a thousand years after St. Augustine, not a thousand, how much? 800 years after St. Augustine. St. Thomas Aquinas, he writes that as regards the individual nature, woman is defective and misbegotten. For the active force in the male seed tends to produce the perfection, the perfect likeness of the masculine, while the production of woman comes from a defect in the active force uh, or from material indisposition or even from some external influence. And the same goes for so, so many other Christian theologians, including Martin Luther, the founder of Protestant Christianity, uh, that uh, once again, the notion of Eve being the seductress, trans, uh, uh, you permeates throughout their writings again and again in the Jewish uh, Mishnah and Talmudic literature and in Christian church fathers and theologians, women are denigrated because of the image of Eve, the image of the temptress, the image of the one whom even shaitan had to use to get to our father Adam. As I said, the Quran could not be more different. And I really wanted to make this point in today's lecture. You, you really have to appreciate and we thank Allah. We have such a different version of this biblical story and we should not therefore have any problem in saying uh, or any issue in saying that the testament or the new old and new testament's version of the story of adam and hawa alayhi salam really is a corruption of the original story where the quran does not lay blame to adam at uh, sorry to hawa at all individually never is the uh, our mother hawa single out if anything they are both guilty equally and if anything Adam السلام, takes the lion's responsibility. Uh, that is the Quranic narrative. Now, is there any other uh, evidence to suggest that Hawa uh, السلام, might have played a role? There is. And there's two main evidences for this in our own literature. The first of them is very easily dismissed. And this is a number of reports from early Mufassirun, not from the Prophet wasallam, not even attributed to him, from early Mufassirun, such as Qatada, such as even Ibn Abbas, such as others, who were well known to take from the Israeliyat. Now, if you go back to one of my previous lectures, I went over in some detail the notion of early authorities taking from Israeliyat, taking from the Judeo-Christian lore. I have just quoted you 15, not 15, maybe a dozen, quotations from the Old and New Testament and from rabbis and church fathers. It is very clear what the Israeliyat say. And perhaps the Sahaba and the Tabi'un had access to Israeliyat that we do not have access to anymore. Because again, uh, the compilation of Israeliyat is in a whole story altogether. The point being, the Quran is very clear in this regard. Israeliyat is very clear. Judeo-Christian source is very clear. Now, it is. it should come as no surprise that those tabi'un, and yes, even the few Sahaba, who believed it to be permissible to take from the Israeliyat, have the same notion found amongst them. And I will quote you perhaps the most famous narration, reported in Al-Tabari, and uh, Al-Awsat, and Al-Hakim's Mustadrak, and Al-Bayhaqi Shu'ab, and others, from uh, Sa'id ibn Jubayr, from Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala an, that Ibn Abbas said, now this is Ibn Abbas, 
saying this. Ibn Abbas is just telling his students this, right? Ibn Abbas said, when Adam ate from the tree that he was forbidden from, Allah said to him, why did you disobey me? Adam said, Hawa seduced me. Hawa made it appeasing to me. So Allah said, I shall then punish her that she shall only give birth in pain. And, sorry, she shall only carry the baby in pain and give birth in pain and bleed monthly, meaning the cycle. When Hawa heard this, she cried out in, uh, in frustration and whatnot. Uh, and Allah said to her, and your lot, your, your yani, fate is going to be to constantly cry, you and your daughters after you, end quote. Now, we need to be very clear here. People, and again, may Allah yani, protect us. Some people are just so ultra sensitive and not very erudite or academic or open-minded. They don't understand. We explained Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala and how can we ever be frustrated or irritated at him? He's a, the greatest scholar of, amongst the later Sahaba. He's a cousin of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam radiallahu ta'ala an. We love and respect him, but we have to understand one simple point. He felt that it is completely permissible to narrate Israeliyat. And this is something everybody knows, by the way. Just because some of our younger viewers who are overzealous and wanting to consider everybody to be a deviant don't know this, that's upon them. Every scholar of Islam who studies tafsir knows this, right? When we point this out, there is no disrespect for Ibn Abbas radiallahu an. He had a methodology. That methodology was, I'm allowed to take from Judeo-Christian sources. Okay, if we understand that methodology, now we come across something that is from Ibn Abbas radiallahu an, or his students who took from Ibn Abbas, right? So you had Qatada, you had Mujahid, you had you know, Sa'id ibn Jubayr and others of the next generation, all of them are in the same mindset and philosophy that it is okay to take from Judeo-Christian sources. And I quoted Ibn Khaldun, the great Allama, the great intellectual thinker, from uh, from Andalus, who said that many of the Sahaba and Tabi'un, they felt that the Jewish lore was an encyclopedia of knowledge, and the Arabs did not have any knowledge at the, before Islam. So because the Jewish people had knowledge, and the Arabs had no knowledge at the time, the first generation felt that any knowledge from the Jewish civilization would be good and legitimate, because th there was nothing to contrast to, right? And so they felt it to be completely permissible and okay, and they interpreted some ahadith of the process in this regard, and I went over those ahadith as well. Hadithu an Bani Israel wa Haraj, I went over them in a previous lecture. So the fact that Ibn Abbas says this, and it is found in Tafsir al-Tabari, so what? We respect and love Ibn Abbas, but it is not something we must believe in. On the contrary, because it goes against the Quran, and it appears to be in complete sync and harmony with the Bible, we should reject such narrations as being divine or authentic. Now, did Ibn Abbas say it? Yes, he must have said it. It doesn't mean it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the key point here, that the Sahaba are allowed to hold opinions and their opinions are respected, but they're not binding on the rest of us. And that's the point here. And the same goes for so many other narrations that we find from the early scholars who took from the Israeliyat. So once again, if you look at this group of great erudite 
some of the Sahaba and many of the Tabi'un Tabatabi'un, they are quoting this notion of Eve as the seductress, Eve as the temptress, Eve as the one who told Adam to eat. And I say, all such narrations, we simply point out with utmost respect to those who said them, they are not coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, from the Quran, they are coming from Israeliyat, and we should not have anything to do with them because it clashes, it's not neutral. Our Prophet ﷺ basically allowed us to narrate from the Bani Israel when it's neutral, when it has no, when it doesn't go against the Quran. And I follow this methodology and I myself will sometimes be quoting you something from Israeliyat and I'll tell you this is from the Israeliyat. But when something from the Israeliyat causes this type of gender tension, when it, when, it, when it denigrates an entire gender, and it brings about this notion of women being inferior, and women being the seductress, and women being the temptress, well then we have to put our foot down and say, no, the Quran doesn't tell us this. If anything, our father Adam is more responsible because Allah said so. So all of these reports that are found in the books of Tafsir, we are, they are there. We respect those who said them, but we simply say they are not a part of the tradition that we are obliged to follow. Okay, there is though one text that will bring about more issues. And that text is not narrated from Ibn Abbas. It is not attributed to Qatada or Mujahid or Sa'id ibn Jubayr. No, this text is attributed to the Prophet And it is an indirect reference to the tempting of Hawa to our father Adam. And this is where we get to the uh, notion or this, this the issue of did our mother Hawa tempt Adam or not from our tradition. As we explained, the Quran and the clearly mutawatir sunnah does not have this, but there is one hadith that is found in the authentic books, Bukhari and Muslim. And it is reported by Abu Hurairah that he says that the Prophet said, were it not for Hawa, no woman would ever betray Takhun, her husband. And were it not for the children of Israel, no meat would ever spoil. End of hadith. Now, this hadith is isnad-wise authentic, and it is reported in Bukhari and Muslim, which is the highest level of authenticity. But it has two facts in it, both of which have given our early commentators much food for thought and much cause to pause and ruminate and pontificate and try to figure out what do these ahadith mean. Were it not for Hawa, no woman would ever betray her husband. And were it not for the children of Israel, no meat would ever spoil. Now, as for the notion of Hawa betraying her husband and whatnot, I have already explained, uh, I mean, I've already shown you for uh, a meaning uh, that this notion is clearly found in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Now, whether the Prophet said or not, we're gonna to come to this point here. As for the second phrase, were it not for the children of Israel, no meat would spoil. This is also a motif that is found in the Old Testament. The phrase that meat would not spoil had it not been for the children of Israel, it has caused a lot of discussion amongst our early scholars, because what exactly does that mean? I mean, one interpretation is that 
before the time of the children of Israel, basically uh, the children of Israel uh, lived uh, 3,000 years ago, right? So if one were to understand one interpretation of this hadith, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago, meat would not spoil if you left it outside. That is one interpretation that one may derive from this hadith. But even our early scholars found this interpretation not appropriate. Meat would not spoil if left out in the air, and it was the children of Israel that caused meat to spoil. And this is mentioned that uh, Qatada and others uh, said that the Bani Israel were the first to store meat, and because they stored meat, they learned that it became rotten. Meaning, according to this interpretation, it's not that meat did not spoil before Bani Israel, it is that nobody stored meat. They just left it and walked away or they didn't store it or whatever, so they didn't know that it became rotten. And the Bani Israel were the first to try to preserve it and make it dry and keep it, and so they learned that it becomes uh, rotten. And others have other interpretations, some of which are even more far-fetched than the other, but clearly this phrase has raised a lot of eyebrows even in our early scholars. Ibn Hajar has a paragraph trying to find different you know, interpretations of what exactly this hadith means, and he simply narrates a number of opinions and then moves on. But it's quite interesting to note that the same notion of meat spoiling because it has been left out, it is exactly found in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 16, I quote you, verses 14 onwards, and this is when the children of Israel were wandering uh, in, uh, the, uh, in the valleys, and they were, they were wandering uh, in the Exodus, and when they were expelled and they were still wandering for 40 years. The Bible says, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Every one of you is to gather as much as they need. Take an omar as a unit for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered more, some gathered less. And when they measured it by the omar, the unit, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. A miracle happened. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until the morning. Finish it up. You're not gonna, you have to put your trust in Allah. The next morning you'll get another batch. Do not store the meat. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept a part of it until the morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. And then the passage goes on. This was the first time meat became rotten became full of maggots and began to smell because they disobeyed their Lord and they kept this manna and salwa, they kept this meat when the Moses forbade them to keep meat. Now, it is interesting to note that this hadith in Bukhari and Muslim narrated by Abu Huraira, the first phrase of it has Hawa betraying Adam. And the second phrase has the Bani Israel causing the meat to go rotten. And both of these motifs again, this is, I'm just saying factually, are clearly found in the Old Testament. So the issue then comes, do we accept this narration or not? The vast majority of our scholars did. 
And the reason is because this is an authentic hadith with authentic isnad back to Abu Hurairah and Abu Hurairah is saying the Prophet said. Another group of scholars from Sunni Islam, they said that Abu Hurairah sometimes his students mixed up and as we said in a previous lecture, go back to that lecture, even Imam Muslim, the famous student of Bukhari, uh, and the great alim and the great uh, scholar of hadith in his Kitab al-Tamiz, which is one of the books that he wrote, he mentions that people would see that Abu Huraira's narrations, sometimes Ka'b al-Ahbar's narrations got mixed up with them. And Ka'b al-Ahbar was the rabbi, the son of the rabbi, the grandson of the rabbi, his whole family was rabbis. And Ka'b al-Ahbar was the senior most uh, rabbi convert in the time of the Sahaba slash Tabi'un. And he would narrate to Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira was his prize student and he said famously that none of my students knows the Bible without learning Hebrew than Abu Huraira because he had narrated the Bible, the Old Testament to him. So a number of scholars have said that this hadith might actually not be a hadith. It's not from the Prophet ﷺ. This might be from the Israeliyat. This might be from uh, that mix-up that has happened, uh, as, as so many scholars pointed out, that in the narrations of Uhrir, sometimes we find Ka'b al-Ahbar's effects, and there is a legitimate mix-up, a potential uh, contamination. Now this leads us to a much larger topic, which it's not the, 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 the primary topic that we're doing in this series, and this is a bit academic, but I want you to know what it is. It is called metan criticism. What is metan? Metan is the words of the hadith, and isnad is the chain that goes to the words. So every single hadith has an isnad and a metan. The isnad is so-and-so, narrated from so-and-so, narrated from so-and-so, narrated from the sahabi, narrated from the Prophet This chain of narrators is called an isnad. Right? At the end of the Isnad is the famous Imam al-Bukhari, Imam Muslim, Imam Tirmidhi, Imam Abu Dawood, or any of the 500 plus authors who wrote books and treatises about Hadith and Sunnah. The compilers, the original compilers, that's the end of the Isnad. On the other side of the Isnad, you have the Sahaba who narrate from the Prophet ﷺ. Between the compiler and the Sahabi, this is the full Isnad. And so this is the Isnad. The bulk of Hadith criticism, 95% of it deals with the Isnad. Is it authentic? Are the people trustworthy? Do they have good memories? Have they met one another? Is there any defect, missing link? That's 95% of it. Generally speaking, the concept of criticizing the matin, the concept of saying, okay, even if the Isnad is authentic, is the matin also authentic or not? Generally speaking, mainstream Sunni scholars were very, very hesitant to open this door. Why? Because they did not want to do what the other groups did, especially their counter part, which is the Mu'tazila school. The two main schools of early Islam were the Mu'tazili and the Sunni. And from the Mu'tazila, you had many strands, uh, 12 Shiism and Zaydism and Ibadism. They took many of the notions of, of the Mu'tazila and they adopted them. Uh, and uh, you had, of course, uh, uh, Sunnism as well. So Sunni Islam, generally speaking, and uh, we are all, I am, we're all belonging to Sunni Islam. Generally speaking, they did not want to open the door of metan criticism. Why? Because the Mu'tazila were the exact opposite. They cared more about the Matin than they did about the Isnad. 
And they said, if a hadith doesn't make sense, then we're not gonna accept it. But the problem comes if a hadith doesn't make sense according to whom? And this is where Ahlul Sunnah, Sunnis felt very un uncomfortable with the Mu'tazili paradigm. They said, who are we to reject what the Prophet ﷺ might have said? If he said it, we must accept it. And that's a great premise to start from because exactly that is true. Like Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu an, if he said it, it must be true. And so they, generally speaking, I mean Sunnis, did not want to open the door for mutton criticism. And generally speaking, no matter how, generally speaking, whatever the metan was, they would accept it if the isnad were authentic, unless they had to. And when did they have to? Well, generally speaking, again, I'm being very generic, this is a crash course in a very advanced aspect of mustalah al-hadith, which is beyond the scope of our lectures, but it is important that we understand this, because again, yani we have to just clarify that um, those people who did find this particular hadith uh, uh, to be not authentic, uh, they are applying legitimate Sunni principles, even if you disagree with their conclusion, the methodology is not Mu'tazili, the, the methodology is Sunni. To say that this hadith seems to contradict the Quran, and it seems to contradict other hadith, and the narrator or the narrators are known to come from a contamination of Kaab al-Ahbar, i.e. the same source we know from so many uh, instances and from Imam Muslim's book and whatnot, authentic narrations, we know that Kaab al-Ahbar's uh, statements sometimes creeped in. And so what if this was one of them? And we know this to be the case before anybody accuses or whatnot, great scholars like Imam al-Nawi, like Ibn Taymiyyah, like Ibn al-Qayyim, they pointed out in another narration, not this one by the way, uh, Abu Huraira has a narration in Sahih Muslim. Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala has a narration in Sahih Muslim uh, that is highly problematic for many scholars of Islam. As I said, even in Nawi and uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn al-Qayyim, they all say this is from the Israeliyat. It's not from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that is a narration in which uh, it is alleged, it is alleged that you know the Prophet sallallahu alayhi said, Allah created the earth in six days. On Saturday, he created the, the mountains. On Sunday, he created the oceans. On Monday, he did this on Saturday. And so he, he lists in this narration narration, something that is pretty much straight out of Genesis. It's literally, you can call, you can see Genesis and this, and it's very, very similar. And it goes against the Quran, and it goes against the seven days, and it goes against whatnot. And so a lot of our ulama said, this hadith is not from the Prophet wasallam. It is from the Israeliyat. It is from Judeo-Christian sources. Now, when they say this, Nobody should accuse them of rejecting a'udhu billah, anything that the Prophet is saying. Here is where we have to be, again, we have to be more intellectual and academic. We have to calm down our emotions. When somebody objects to a chain or a matin, and they say the Prophet did not say this, and they find a weakness, this is not a rejection of the Prophet ﷺ, it's a rejection of a statement being attributed to him. And the difference between the two is the difference between iman and kufr. I repeat, the difference between the two is the difference between Iman and Kufr. If somebody says, I don't care if the Prophet said it, I'm not gonna accept it, that is Kufr. I repeat, if somebody rejects something they know came from the mouth of the Prophet this is Kufr. But if a scholar says, no, no, this, this, this hadith, which is reported in this book, I don't think it came from the Prophet because of such and such a reason. And because of this, I consider it to be weak or Israeliyat, and I don't accept it. 
this is not kufr at all. You, you could say he's wrong, you could say he's mistaken, you could say he's applied wrong principles, you can disagree, but it is not kufr to find a hadith weak because of a problem in the isnad, that's the essence of Sunni Islam, or even a problem in the matin if it is done properly. And I'll give you some examples so that you understand. Matin criticism, while it is rare in mainstream Sunni Islam, it is found and it is done, and it is a well-known chapter in the books of Mustalah or the books of uh, the sciences of Hadith, and there are many instances. For example, the Sahabi could have made an honest mistake, and it is authentically narrated, he said something, and he's attributing it to the past, but his memory is wrong. The classic example, is uh, the famous narration in Sahih Muslim uh, that Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala the great Ibn Abbas, the same Ibn Abbas said that his aunt Maymuna, it is his own khala, Maymuna is his own aunt, that the Prophet married Maymuna while he was in ihram, while he was in ihram, you know, after, uh, you know, the, the umrah, when you go into the ihram, before exiting the ihram, uh, according to this uh, report of Ibn Abbas, that the Prophet married Maymuna while he was in ihram. The vast majority of scholars, even though the isnad is like the sun, they say Ibn Abbas is wrong because the Prophet was not in ihram because Maymuna herself narrates that the Prophet married me when he got out of Ihram. So you have a narration of a nephew, and you have a narration of the eyewitness and the one who actually was the one married. Who are you gonna accept? This is matin criticism, okay? Uh, you have in Sahih Muslim, you know the Prophet uh, he prayed the eclipse prayer once in his lifetime, right? Once in his lifetime he prayed the eclipse prayer. In Sahih Muslim, with authentic isnads, we have multiple narrations of how he prayed, multiple mutually exclusive contradictory narrations. Some say he did two, some say he did three ruku', some say he did four ruku', and he only prayed it once. How could he have done three ruku', or two ruku', or four ruku' in the same raka'ah? Clearly, something is not right in some of them. And so our scholars have sifted through, and there are fiqh books written about this. But the point is, this is where matan criticism occurs. So, if somebody were to say, if somebody were to say that yes, this hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim, and yes, the default is that we accept Bukhari and Muslim, but in this particular case, this narration, both of its phrases, really seems to go against the rest of the texts, and the source has been known to be contaminated, i.e. the reports from Ka'b al-Ahbar and the circle of Ka'b al-Ahbar. And therefore, the stronger position will be that this hadith is from the Israeliyat and not from the Prophet Sallallahu then this is a valid opinion. And it has been opined by a number of uh, especially modern uh, authors from within Sunni Islam. However, this is an opinion and it is a minority opinion. There is no doubt that the majority of opinion uh, throughout our Islamic history has been that the hadith is from the Prophet Sallallahu and therefore if that is the case, then they have interpreted and accepted it to be valid. And so Ibn Hajar comments that the betrayal of uh, Hawa to Adam was not a betrayal of adultery. For no wife of any Prophet, even Lut and Nuh, betrayed them in this manner. 
Rather, it was the betrayal of enticing and the betrayal of encouraging her husband to eat from the tree. And so he then says, this Ibn Hajar saying, that because Hawa did this to Adam, so too if any woman betrays her husband, it is as if she is not doing justice to her husband in this uh, regard. And Ibn al-Jawzi, the famous scholar, he says, as for the betrayal of Hawa to uh, her husband, he says, it was because she did not advise him regarding the tree and uh, she should have stopped him from doing so. Uh, end quote here. And Ibn al-Athir, he says the same thing, that the betrayal of Hawa was that she did not advise Adam when he ate from the tree, end quote. Now to gently push back, and again, these are great ulama, and I, I understand, you know, when I uh, say these types of statements, many people, they get very flustered and whatnot, and who are you and how dare and whatnot, and the response is that we all have the right, after having studied, to have op opinions and positions. We present these opinions, whoever wants to take them, fine. Whoever does not, that is fine, to gently push back. And of course, Ibn al-Jawzi and Ibn al-Athir are great giants of our tradition. But to gently push back and say, if this is considered betrayal, then all of us have betrayed everybody in this earth. If this is khiyana, that her, that Hawa did not stop Adam and Hawa did not stop. And so that's why, were it not for Hawa, no woman would betray her husband, right? That's a very, very blunt statement. Did the Prophet say that? That women betray their husband because Hawa betrayed Adam? Or is this a sentiment found in the Old and New Testament as I have quoted you? So, those people who say this phrase and the other phrase, meat spoiling because of the children of Israel, these are not something that in all likelihood the Prophet said. Then that is a valid opinion and I would respect that opinion, and it is within the mainstream, and it is applying the principles of Mustalah al-Hadith. And if somebody says, as is Ibn Hajar and, and these great scholars, and we all love and respect them, that no, uh, it is a betrayal, but it is a betrayal that Hawa did not stop Adam, and Hawa did not advise Adam the way that she should have advised him. And so that's the betrayal. And so any woman who does the same has also betrayed her husband. Okay, that is an opinion, and we respect that opinion. And I leave both of these opinions for you, and you can decide uh, which one uh, you think is the more um, accurate one. And at the end of the day, uh, as I said, you have therefore these two positions there. And the first position is that, uh, uh, that this notion of Hawa betraying our father Adam and Hawa seducing Adam and Hawa telling Adam to eat. It is a purely biblical one found in the Old and New Testament and the Quran clearly, without a doubt, nobody can say this, that the Quran, the narrative of the Quran has nothing to do with the biblical narrative. And the Quran does not place any primary blame on Hawa. There is no singling out of Hawa at all. Whereas the Old Testament blames Hawa almost entirely. Women, 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 women has done this. Almost exonerating Adam from the picture as if, you know, he has nothing to do with it. And from that, Western civilization went the way that it did. And because of that, feminism did what it had to do. Feminism is a byproduct because, because of how they treated women in medieval era. Therefore, they had to make that up by going the way that they did. And every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so from one extreme, they go to another extreme. But the point being that 
if you want to take this notion and because of this say, this one narration that is found from the Kaab al-Ahbar circle does not really tally up to the rest of the Quran, to the entirety of the Quran, and to the other traditions of the Prophet Sallallahu that's a valid opinion to hold. And if you want to say, well, we will accept it because the majority scholars have accepted it, because Bukhari and Muslim have accepted it, well then that too is a safe position as well, that if you wish to hold it, uh, but one should be careful to not extrapolate from this and go down the route of Western civilization. Do not blame women for uh, something that even if our mother had done it, uh, it is one person. We don't believe in the original sin. And that's another point of this hadith, by the way, that were it not for Hawa, the rest of women, what have the rest of women got to do with Hawa, by the way? Why should the rest of women have to do with our mother Hawa? As Allah says in the Quran, Kullu rahina. And as Allah says in the Quran, La nafsan illa wus'aha. And Allah says in the Quran, La ukhra. And now we find uh, hadith that comes from the pool of Kaab and it seems to suggest all women share a trait of one mother. It actually goes against the Quranic message, brothers and sisters. Let's be brutally honest here. It goes against the Quranic message that nobody shall bear the sin of another and no one shall be held accountable because of another. So even if our father ate, it's not my sin that I have to worry about. Even if uh, our mother might have done something, it's not going to be cast upon women that because of that, she's going to have a painful child childhood, a childbirth and a painful you know, giving this in a painful menstruation. No, this is straight from the Bible. It is not from the Quran or from the words of the Prophet wasallam. So anyway, to conclude, as I said, we have both of these opinions there and I'll leave it to you to see which one you think is the one that is more in line with uh, 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 the Quran and uh, what we know of the Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. And in the end, Allah knows best. And I say very clearly and unabashedly, whatever the Prophet ﷺ said, and we know that he said it, it is true. Anything he said, we believe in it. But the question is, what? how do we know what he actually said and what he didn't say? And that's where the sciences of hadith come, and that's where we will find differences of opinion from the beginning of time up until our times. And with this, we come to the conclusion of today's lecture about the role or the alleged role of our mother, Hawa. And I will see you, inshallah, next Wednesday. Until then, jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. لقد كان في قصصهم عبرة لأولي الألباب ما كان حديثا يفترى ولكن تصديق الذي بين يديه وتفصيل كل شيء وهدى وهدى ورحمة لقوم Minum.